Chapter 17 A History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 The Spanish Occupation of Alta California. When Galvez set out from Mexico City on April 9, 1768, his immediate object was that of founding the Department of San Blas. On January 11, 1768, Viceroy Croy, at Galvez's suggestion, had issued an instruction for the establishment of a settlement at San Blas, stating that it was deemed indispensable, after Sonora and the rest of the frontier should have been pacified, to found a port for the advantage of boats employed on similar expeditions or in commerce with Sonora, and also for the preservation and advancement of the Californias. In other words, San Blas was to be the base of supplies in New Spain for the region of the proposed Commandancy General. It seems highly probable that Galvez himself was already planning, as one phase of this project, an immediate occupation of Monterey and Alta California, based on the port of San Blas. Since this bears directly on the causes of the expeditions of 1769, the evidence is worth reviewing. The devious routes by which the visitador was accustomed to proceed to his real aims should be borne in mind in considering this matter. It is usually stated that the Spanish court at Madrid received reports about Russian aggression in the Pacific Northwest and sent orders to meet them by the occupation of Alta California, wherefore the expeditions of 1769 were made. This view contains only a smattering of the truth. It is evident from Galvez's correspondence of 1768 that he and Croy had discussed the advisability of an immediate expedition to Monterey long before any word came from Spain about the Russian activities. In December 1767, Galvez is reported by one of his secretaries to have been ardently at work on plans for a department at San Blas, and already to have charged a certain Manuel Rivero with the duty of establishing a port there. All this a month before Croy's instruction. The prominent place of Alta California in the plan for the new Commandancy General has already been alluded to, and one of the projects of that plan called for an immediate despatch of vessels to occupy and colonize Monterey. This is only one of many evidences of the direction of Galvez's interest toward the northern port. He had come to New Spain at a time when a number of works calling attention to the desires of other powers to gain a footing in the Californias were being published in Europe, and the visitador seems to have been acquainted with this literature. On April 22, 1768, Galvez reached Guadalajara, remaining in that city until May 4th. In referring to his stay in Guadalajara, the Audencia said that he had spoken of his plans for exploring the Californias. It was not until May 5th, after he had left that city, that Galvez received the mail from Croy telling of Russian explorations in the Americas. Footnote. Galvez's relations with the Audencia of Guadalajara furnish another interesting instance of the methods of this strange man. The report of the Audencia to the king, dated May 18, 1768, was most laudatory of the visitador and his projects of government and conquest in the northwest. Looking underneath the surface, 
one finds the following illuminating facts bearing upon the preparation of this report. Immediately after Galvez's own departure from Guadalajara, one of his secretaries appeared before the Audencia and asked that body to write to the king, approving all of Galvez's measures and especially congratulating the royal government on the fact that Galvez himself had been chosen to execute them. The Audencia did as requested, but one of the members of that body, Ramon Gonzalez Becerra, had been opposed to this action. He accordingly wrote to the king, reporting what had happened and stating that he had signed his own name to the document of May 18th under protest. There is no direct evidence that Galvez had suggested the action of a secretary. The visitador was too crafty for that. But it is of record that Gonzalez was made to feel Galvez's disapproval. He was soon suspended from his position on the charge that he had needlessly absented himself from meetings of the Audencia. In footnote, the Spanish minister to Russia had written to the royal government in Madrid late in 1767 that the Russian empress was preparing expeditions for fresh attempts to establish communications between eastern Siberia and the Pacific coasts of the Americas. On January 23, 1768, the Marques de Grimaldi, the Spanish Minister of State, wrote to the Viceroy about the rumors of Russian activities, saying that news had been received that the Russians had actually made a landing in North America, though at what degree of latitude it was not known, and had had a battle with the Indians in which they had suffered a loss of 300 Russian dead. After remarking that the Russians might be endeavoring to extend their commerce to those coasts, Grimaldi went on as follows, quote, The king has ordered me to inform your excellency of all that has just been set forth, so that you may make it known to the man appointed governor of California, giving him instructions about the vigilance and care that he ought to exercise in order to observe such attempts as the Russians may make there, frustrating them if possible, and giving notice of everything promptly to your excellency so that you may report it to his majesty End quote. this letter it will be observed did not order an expedition to monterey but it was sufficient to give an active man all the authority that he needed especially if it is true that he had already determined to make such an expedition croy's letter of april twentieth to galvez is not at hand but at a later date in his instruction of 1771 to his successor, he had the following to say of this letter. Quote, I thought that an invasion would be made by the Russians by way of the famous port of Monterey and transmitted the order of the court to the visitador, bidding him to make an expedition by sea toward the threatened port. The visitador, bethinking himself of the difficulties of a maritime expedition and being desirous of exploring the province, sent two expeditions, one by sea and the other by land. From this, it appears that Croy was far from ordering the occupation of Alta California, which Galvez, in fact, carried out. Perhaps because he himself intended to do very much more than the instructions called for, Galvez reserved the answer to Croy for more than two weeks. In the meantime, he reached San Blas on May 13th, and on the 16th called a junta to discuss the expeditions to Monterey. 
Not until May 20th did he write to Croy of his plans. The letter follows. Quote, in fulfillment of His Majesty's order, communicated to you on January 23rd by the Marquise de Grimaldi, concerning repeated attempts which the Russians have made to open communication with North America, and in consequence also of what you commanded in your letter of April 30th, enclosing a copy of the above-mentioned order, and recalling to mind the many conversations and reflections which we have previously had concerning the supreme importance and utility of taking possession of the port of Monterey and establishing a presidio there, I am obeying your order to take such measures as I deem fitting for reaching that place by land or sea. As you leave to me discretion for the fulfillment of this order, it has seemed to me both fitting and necessary that I should inform you from here of the resolution which it was thought proper to take in this weighty matter. End quote. Thus cleverly did Galvez associate Croy with the enterprise. Before Croy could have had time to reply to him, the visitador embarked on May 24th for Baja California. In any event, the viceroy was heartily in favor of the project, and so too was the government in Madrid, as soon as it was apprised of the matter. It remains to say that the Department of San Blas, from its very inception, served primarily as a supply depot for the Californias, and its relations to Sonora were by comparison rather slight. Doubtless, Galvez had intended from the first that it should turn out that way. The Russian emergency was merely an incident in the long chain of foreign aggressions, real or imaginary, which had for nearly two centuries been the principal and the continuing cause of Spanish frontier advance, and the reported encroachments on this occasion were not more dangerous than those of other times. The true cause for the occupation of Alta California, which soon followed in 1769, was the permanent, not the immediate, foreign danger, together with the appearance of a man who, for all his faults, was endowed with the energy and administrative capacity that the enterprise required. The story of Galvez's activities in Baja California may be quickly reviewed or passed over in silence. Leaving San Blas on May 24, 1768, he was driven back and forth by storms, and it was not until July 5th, 40 days later, that he was able to set foot in the peninsula. Thus, again, were the difficulties of the short voyage across the Gulf demonstrated. For nearly ten months thereafter, he remained in Baja California, reorganizing the government in the missions and preparing the expeditions to San Diego and Monterey. He had expected to find vast stores of wealth in the peninsula, for he shared the general belief of the times that the Jesuits had tried to conceal its resources in gold, silver, and pearls. No doubt, he soon disabused himself of this belief, for, now that the pearl fields had failed to yield so richly as in the past, there was very little ready-made or easily acquired wealth to be had in Baja California. Indeed, the settlements were in a wretched state. The military commissaries who succeeded the Jesuits had mismanaged the mission estates, epidemics had swept away hundreds of Indians, there was a revolt of the Indians in the south, and, all in all, there was a situation of dire economic distress. It is said that the total population of the peninsula had sunk to fewer than 8,000 souls. Nevertheless, 
Galvez was not discouraged. If he said little henceforth about the wealth of Baja California, he many times emphasized the strategic importance of both that territory and Alta California. His experience must have confirmed him all the more in his original belief, however, that Sonora was the true center from which all the lines of advance to the northwest should radiate. The peninsula was not and could not be made to become a suitable storehouse for the advantage of Alta California. Indeed, Galvez had only visited Baja California, so he said at a later time, in order to occupy himself pending the advancement or the conclusion of the campaign in Sonora. As for the expeditions to Alta California, he threw himself into them with all possible vigor, drawing also upon the leading officials in Baja California to take part in them. Gaspar de Portola, governor of the province, was slated for the command, and Father Junipero Serra, who had only recently arrived to take over the former Jesuit missions, was appointed president of the new missions to be founded in Alta California. Indeed, Father Serra was named without any prior inquiry as to whether the post would be acceptable and without any chance to refuse. The whole plan met with his enthusiastic approval, however, though his superiors of the College of San Fernando vigorously opposed it, yielding only because they could not do otherwise. But, though Portola and Serra ably seconded the visitador in his efforts, it is to Galvez, who had conceived the idea of the expeditions in the first place, that the chief credit is due for organizing them and starting them on their way. Arrangements were made for two expeditions by land and two by sea. Boats for the latter were procured by taking over the San Carlos and the San Antonio, otherwise Principe, which had been built to facilitate transport for the Sonora War. Livestock, provisions, and needed utensils were levied upon the missions of the peninsula. Indeed, all that they could spare, and in some cases more than that, was taken. To increase the military forces, orders were sent to Colonel Elizondo in Sonora, bidding him detach a company of 25 Catalan soldiers for service in Alta California. In November 1768, these men reached the peninsula under the command of Lieutenant Pedro Fagas, later to become one of the greatest of the Spanish governors of Alta California. The San Carlos reached La Paz in December, but it had been so badly beaten by storms that it was already in a leaky condition. It was necessary to unload and careen the boat, and then to load it again. Galvez superintended these tasks in person, and often gave a hand in the actual labor of lading, thus greatly inspiriting the men. On January 9, 1769, the tiny little craft, for it was a ship of but 200 tons burthen, at last set sail. In all, there were 62 men aboard, including Vicente Vila, the commander, Fagas and his Catalans, and the engineer and diarist Miguel Constanzo. Among the others were two blacksmiths and a baker for the proposed settlements. Also, a quantity of church ornaments, agricultural tools, provisions, and seeds were carried. Galvez, on the Concepcion, accompanied the San Carlos as far as Cape San Lucas. There he saw the San Carlos double the cape and strike for the north. 
Galvez now gave his attention to the San Antonio. Upon its arrival at Cape San Lucas on January 25th, it was thought best to unload it and careen it, just as had been done in the case of the San Carlos. Not until February 15th did the San Antonio get underway. In addition to crew and cargo, some blacksmiths and carpenters were taken along. Juan Perez, a native of Mallorca and a former master of the Manila Galleon, was in command. He was now to be, for several years, the principal maritime figure in the annals of Alta California. The total number of those on board has not been recorded. Turning to the land expeditions, Galvez sent out a first detachment under Captain Fernando de Rivera y Moncada, who had been in Baja California for more than a decade and was later to become a governor of the northern province. With him went 25 soldiers, three muleteers, and 42 Christian Indians, who it was believed might prove useful both as interpreters and as assistants in converting the natives of the north, besides performing the drudgery of the expedition. Father Juan Crespi, a native of Mallorca, intimate friend of Serra, and one of the more notable of the Franciscans in Alta California in ensuing years, was also with Rivera. Gathering nearly 400 domestic animals from the missions as he went along, besides implements and provisions, Rivera made his way to Santa Maria de los Angeles, then the most northerly mission. Finding insufficient pasture for his animals, he moved on to Velicata, situated in 30 degrees, about 150 miles due south of San Diego. From this point, he started for Alta California on March 24th. Meanwhile, the second land expedition under Governor Portola had departed from Loreto on March 9th. As eventually made up, his party included Father Serra, Sergeant Jose Francisco de Ortega, nine or ten soldiers, two servants of Portola and Serra, and 44 Baja California natives. Serra made the journey under difficulties, being troubled with an ulcer in his foot and leg, but he declined to be left behind. On May 14th, they founded the mission of San Fernando de Velicata, having reached that place the same day. On the 15th, Portola set out over Rivera's route to San Diego. One further expedition was sent, beyond the four originally planned. This went out on the San Jose, which had been built especially for voyages to the northwest coast. Nevertheless, like its predecessors, it had to be overhauled and repaired when it reached the peninsula in February. In May, the San Jose carried the Visitador across to Sonora, whence it returned to Loreto and sailed for San Diego on June 16th. According to one account, the ship was never heard from again. According to another, it was so badly damaged by storms that it returned to San Blas for repairs. At length, it departed for the north from Cape San Lucas in May 1770. In either case, the boat was lost with all on board. How many there were remains unknown. A volume of fascinating narrative might well be written about the experiences of the Argonauts of 1769. Here, unfortunately, it is impossible to give way to this very natural desire. The San Antonio, though it had started more than a month later than the San Carlos, was the first to reach San Diego, dropping anchor at that port on April 11th after a voyage of 55 days. 
All on board, except the two friars, were sick or disabled, but no lives had been lost. Eighteen days later, the San Carlos arrived on April 29th. For a voyage which a modern steamer would make in several days, the San Carlos had taken no fewer than 110 days. Everybody on board was sick, and 24 of the crew, all but two of them, had died of the scurvy. On May 14th, Rivera's party got in. He had required 51 days and a march of some 400 miles to come from Velicata. Some of the Indians had died and a number of others had deserted. Occasionally, the natives along the route had shown a disposition to resist or annoy the party, but the noise of gunpowder provided a quick remedy for this source of trouble. The lack of water and a feed for the animals was a much more serious difficulty. Portola's march almost duplicated Rivera's, but on the whole was easier since he was not burdened with the care of so many domestic animals. On the 1st of July, his party reached San Diego, having been on the road 48 days from Velicata. Portola says some of the Indians had died, but no other lives were lost. Only 12 of his 44 Indians reached San Diego, however. The rest had died or deserted. Thus were the expeditions reunited at San Diego, but many of the individuals who had started from Baja California were no longer included. Counting the men on the ill-fated San Jose, perhaps something fewer than 300 men had made up the original expeditions, about half of whom reached Alta California. A fourth of all who started had lost their lives. Such was the toll to the perils of land and sea. The situation at San Diego was one which might have discouraged a less stout-hearted soldier than Governor Portola. Many were sick. Indeed, of those who had come by sea, hardly any were well. This might have been faced with more equanimity were it not that provisions were running low. Nevertheless, as one historian has put it, quote, the governor at once applied himself to preparations for continuing the journey to Monterey. For discouraging as the situation was at San Diego Rendezvous, he did not by any means justify the abandonment of the enterprise at that point. Portola was a true soldier in spirit, as well as in training. In his view, nothing excused him from the performance of duty so long as there was a possibility of discharging it. It was therefore decided that the San Antonio should return for supplies and to report the success thus far attained. Only eight sailors of the 28 who had made the northward voyage on that ship were able to go to sea. With this scant crew, Perez left for the south on July 9th. It was also arranged that the San Carlos should sail for Monterey as soon as there should be enough sailors in health to man it. Portola himself was to go overland through an utterly unknown country to Monterey. On July 14th he started, accompanied by Costanzo, Fagas, and six of his Catalan soldiers, who alone of the 25 were able to march, Captain Rivera and Sergeant Ortega with 26 soldiers, Fathers Crespi and Gomez, seven muleteers, 15 Baja California Indians, and two servants of Portola and Rivera, or a company of 63 in all. The account of their long and terrible march, and indeed of all the experiences of the expeditions, 
is well set forth in a brief narrative by Portola. This was written several years later, in September 1773, by the hand of Juan Manuel de Viniegra, a former secretary of Galvez, who set it down as a statement of Portola in a conversation with an unnamed friend, presumably Viniegra. Quote, While I was passing, my friend, through the missions established by the Jesuits to that one on the frontier named Santa Maria, we experienced no hardships worth mentioning, neither I nor my companions, for in addition to the fact that we took from the Presidio vegetables and delicacies in exchange for the lamentations of the settlers, we were fortunate enough to be able to sleep under roofs and make the march with some comfort. In consideration of the great deserts into which I was going, and of the Russian hunger with which I foresaw we were going to contend, I was obliged to seize everything I saw as I passed through these poor missions, leaving them, to my keen regret, as scantily provided for as I knew the three southern ones had been left in consequence of the orders given by the visitador for dispatching the packet boats San Carlos and San Antonio to the port of Monterey. Thus equipped, I began my march to the bay named San Diego, in company with thirty soldiers of the Presidio and many Indian auxiliaries. But, friend, in a few days we saw with extreme regret that our food was gone, with no source of supplies unless we should turn back. As a result, some of the Indians died, and the rest of them deserted from natural necessity. So I was left alone with the curiosers. Without stopping the march, we went on lamenting, now to the mountains to kill geese and rabbits, now to the beach for clams and small fish, and then in search of water, which we did not find for three or four days, the animals going twice that long without drinking, as we ourselves did sometimes. Overcoming these and other innumerable hardships, natural results of such unhappy fortune, we arrived at the port of San Diego, the spot at which the expeditionaries by land and by sea were to meet in accordance with the instructions of the visitador general to recount to one another the great events which had happened to us and the discoveries incident to our journeys the members of the sea expedition limited their account to the statement that the san carlos had been a hundred and ten days and her consort fifty-nine days in sailing a hundred and fifty leagues because the headwinds from the north and northwest are lords of those coasts throughout the year being attacked by scurvy Thirty-four persons died on the two vessels, and they saw nothing on their voyage save some islands so bare and terrible that they could not look at them without horror. In the face of these unfavorable reports, and of the similar one which we gave to them, I called a council of the officers, and it was resolved by them that the packet boat San Antonio should return to the port of San Blas for provisions and men. Then, leaving the San Carlos in San Diego with two men and the missionary, the sick being placed under a hut of poles which I had erected, I gathered the small portion of food which had not been spoiled in the ships, and went on by land to Monterey with that small company of persons, or rather say skeletons, who had been spared by scurvy, hunger, and thirst. We reached Monterey after struggling thirty-eight days against the greatest hardships and difficulties, for, aside from the fact that there was in all that ungracious country, 
through which we passed after leaving the frontier, no object to greet either the hand or the eye save rocks, brushwood, and rugged mountains covered with snow, we were also without food and did not know where we were. For although the signs whereby we were to recognize the port were the same as those set down by General Sebastian Vizcaino in his log, the fact is that, without being able to guess the reason, we were all under hallucination, and no one dared assert openly that the port was indeed Monterey. In this confusion and distress, friend, not under compulsion from the Russians, but from keen hunger, which was wearing us out, we decided to return to San Diego for the purpose of recuperating our strength by means of the provisions which we judged would soon arrive there on the San Antonio. In order that we might not die meanwhile, I ordered that at the end of each day's march, one of the weak old mules which carried our baggage and ourselves should be killed. The flesh we roasted or half-fried in a fire made in a hole in the ground. The mule being thus prepared, without a grain of salt or other seasoning, for we had none, we shut our eyes and fell to on that scaly mule, what misery, like hungry lions. We ate twelve in as many days, obtaining from them perforce all our sustenance and all our appetite, all our delectation. At last we entered San Diego, smelling frightfully of mules. The Reverend Father President said to me, as he welcomed me, You come from Rome without having seen the Pope, alluding to the fact that we had not found the port of Monterey. We remained at San Diego nine months, waiting on the San Antonio, subsisting for that long period on geese and the fish and other food which the Indians brought us in exchange for clothing. Some of the soldiers were left with barely enough clothing to cover their backs, having given up the rest to avoid perishing from want. We planted a small quantity of corn in the best soil, but although it grew well, the birds ate the best of it while it was yet soft, leaving us all disappointed and bereft of the hope we had cherished of eating the grain which our own hands had sown. After nine months, our troubles were somewhat lessened by the arrival of the packet-boat San Antonio. For, although nearly the entire crew had died of scurvy, we got very particular consolation out of the corn, flour, and rice which it brought. The captain of the vessel represented to me the impossibility of continuing his voyage on account of the loss of man and the bad condition of his vessel. But he nevertheless set sail with provisions for Monterey, leaving at San Diego what was necessary for the missionary and the eight soldiers who remained as an escort. With the sixteen remaining fusiliers and presidial soldiers, I began the second journey to the sought-for Monterey. On this occasion, determining without mistake that we had found the port which Sebastian Vizcaino drew in detail in his log, we set up our camp, the San Antonio dropping anchor eight days later. I was not ignorant of the fact that the King of Spain had, for centuries, been owner and legitimate lord of those lands, but friend, as Article 8 of the instructions of the Visitador General gave me to understand to the contrary, I repeated the formalities of taking legal possession which were therein ordered. In fulfillment of other orders, I proceeded to erect a fort to occupy and defend the port 
from the atrocities of the Russians who were about to invade us as was to be inferred from the terms of the instructions. Indeed, owing to the indefatigable zeal of the engineer, Don Miguel Costanzo, we completed within thirty days the royal fortress, which was built of poles and earth. It was equipped with some small cannon and manned with twenty men, including the missionary, for whom we built a house as well, out of the same material as the port. The mission received the glorious name of our august sovereign, and the other two missions, situated at moderate distances, were called San Fernando and San Buenaventura. Being desirous of complying with all of the orders of the Visitador General, I went also to reconnoitre the port of San Francisco, sixty leagues distant. I did not linger there, nor did I see anything worthy of description there, save only a labyrinth of bays and channels which inundate the territory. Having returned to Monterey, I soon embarked for San Blas, on the coast of New Spain, where, happily, I shortly arrived. For on the return voyage, one travels as fast as Sancho Panza would have liked. You must be weary, friend, of listening to all the plagues which I encountered on my journey. But believe me also when I say that the unhappy Spaniards whom I left in those new settlements are at present enduring the same discomforts. I reported them all to the Viceroy and the Visitador General in official and confidential letters. Without reserve, I explained to them that it was impossible to send aid to Monterey by sea, and still more so by land, unless it was proposed to sacrifice thousands of men and huge sums of money. Proofs of this fact are in the story of the packet boat San Jose, which, having left San Blas three years ago to carry us provisions, has not yet appeared, nor has any news been had of her, doubtless because all of her crew were attacked with scurvy and no one was left to steer the ship away from disaster. I make into my conversation, finally, by replying to the questions which you asked at the beginning. The natives of California are so gentle that we never had to defend ourselves. The mines of gold and silver and other rich products foretold to us in advance advices we never saw nor found, as our first care was to hunt for meat to keep from starving. Even if Monterey is at last fairly well fortified, and California should, through any extravagant desire, be coveted by the Russians, there are still many other ports which, being undefended by troops or fortifications, could not oppose them, and where they may freely establish themselves if they desire. Farewell, friend. Your affectionate Portola. It only remains to comment upon and elaborate certain portions of this story, passing over some of the minor details in which it varied a little from the facts. Portola and his men reached the mouth of the Salinas River on the Bay of Monterey on September 30, 1769. They were in some doubt as to whether they might already have passed the wonderful port described by Vizcaino, and, besides, provisions were scarce, and seventeen men were unfit for active duty. Nevertheless, said Constancel, quote, All the officers voted unanimously that the journey be continued, as this was the only course that remained. For we hoped to find, through the grace of God, 
the much-desired port of Monterey, and in it the packet San Jose, which might relieve our needs. And, if God willed it that in the search for Monterey we should all perish, we would have performed our duty towards God and man, cooperating to the death for the success of the undertaking upon which we have been sent. Unquote. Here, surely, was no weakness. It was at this time, therefore, and not later, as one might have inferred from Portola's narrative, that the journey up the San Francisco Peninsula was made. On October 31st, they saw the Gulf of Falaronis to the northwest, and noting some white cliffs and an opening between them into what, in fact, is Bolinas Bay, believed that they were looking upon Drake's Bay, called by them the Bay of San Francisco. The next day, Sergeant Ortega, who all along had commanded the scouts in the vanguard, was sent out with orders to reach Drake's Bay if possible. Almost certainly, Ortega and his men on this day, November 1st, 1769, reached the Golden Gate and saw part of the great Bay of San Francisco, as it was eventually called within. Later, Ortega was sent up the eastern shore of the bay and may have reached Alameda Creek. In the light of past dreams of Anian, it is at first thought surprising that the discovery was received with so little enthusiasm. Indeed, it occasioned bitter disappointment. Two things must be remembered, however. The men were sick and starving, and they had been sent out not to find a strait of Anian, but the port of Monterey. This clearly was not Monterey. Indeed, it might be Drake's Bay, in which case, as all now agreed, they had passed the port discovered by Vizcaino. They were dispirited, too, because the hope on which they had sustained themselves, that they would find the San Jose, was now gone, for there were no signs of that vessel. Portola was particularly unimpressed. After Ortega and his men had made known the vast reaches of the Great Bay, Portola was able to write in his diary that they had found nothing. And to the soldierly Portola, this was the literal truth, for they had seen nothing of the thing which he had been ordered to find, the port of Monterey. On November 11th, therefore, the return march was begun. More than ten weeks later, on January 24, 1770, they approached San Diego, wondering if they would find anything left of the settlement there. That day they staggered into camp, rejoiced that their comrades were still alive, some had died of scurvy, however, and not one of them had escaped having the disease. Furthermore, the Indians had been troublesome, and on August 15th had rushed the camp. It had been necessary to kill several of them. Worst of all, the San Jose had not put in appearance at all, and the San Antonio had not yet returned. The situation as regards supplies was therefore serious. Many a man in Portola's place would have felt justified in abandoning Alta California at this point. But this gallant officer thought only of his orders. He had been required to occupy the northern territory and meant to hold it until the last moment compatible with the safety of his forces. It was resolved to send Rivera back to the peninsula for supplies in order to make it possible to hold this port longer, according to Portola. This he did, said Constanzo, writing at a later time, lest he should incur such discredit as would result from his abandonment of San Diego. 
The situation was a little less than desperate, however, and the fortunate appearance of the San Antonio on March 23rd may very well have averted an early abandonment. Footnote. A legend is sprung up, having its origin in Paolo's Vida, published in 1787, that Portola would have abandoned Alta California but for the pleadings of Serra. Eventually, it is said, Portola set a date beyond which he would not remain. The day before this ultimate date, the San Antonio was sighted, though it did not get into port until four days later. This story is unsupported by a shred of contemporary evidence. The facts are reviewed in Chapman, The Founding of Spanish California, 98-101. to One further fact should be noted. Rivera was sent to Baja California for supplies so that Portola and his men might continue to hold this port, San Diego, longer. Rivera departed on February 10th. It had taken Portola 48 days merely to come with a light party from Velicata to San Diego. How was Rivera to go far to the south of Velicata, gather supplies, and return to San Diego with a heavy mule train in 38 days? It seems likely that Paolo's story was an unmerited slander on Portola, told with a view to the exaltation of Serra. As for Rivera, he got back to San Diego in July with 80 mule loads of provisions and a small herd of cattle. Under the circumstances, this was making good time, all that could have been expected. End of footnote. The arrival of the San Antonio changed the face of matters. Portola now decided to go north again in search of Monterey. The San Antonio was dispatched to the north on April 16th, and Portola started by land the next day. The governor was the first to arrive. On May 24th, he came to the rendezvous agreed upon in Monterey Bay. Satisfied now that this, after all, was the so-called good port discovered by Vizcaino. Perez came in a week later with the San Antonio. On June 3, 1770, the Presidio and Mission of Monterey were formally inaugurated. Portola's task was now done. He had been ordered to return to New Spain as soon as the beginning of the settlements had been made, turning over command to Fagas. Accordingly, on July 9th, Portola, accompanied by Constanzo, sailed with Perez on the San Antonio, landing at San Blas on the 1st of August. Shortly afterwards, he was promoted to a lieutenant colonelcy, and in 1776 was made colonel and governor of Puebla, New Spain. Taking possession of his government in 1777, he remained at that post until 1784, when he was succeeded by Jacobo de Ugarte and ordered to return to Spain. Then, in his 61st year, Portola passes off the scene so far as present records go. Perez and Constanzo had hastened to Mexico City from San Blas with Portola's dispatches. Arriving there on August 10, 1770, they brought news of the success of Galvez's enterprise. For a year and a half, little, if anything, had been heard from it, and the reports which now came in must have been particularly agreeable in the light of Galvez's unsatisfactory record, as matters turned out, in Sonora. Bells were rung, 
flags displayed, and a special high mass was celebrated. Alta California had been occupied, and the fame of Galvez was secure. Footnote. In addition to the standard authorities and the already cited works of Priestley and Chapman, the translations of original narratives and diaries in the first two volumes of the publications of the Academy of Pacific Coast History are worthy of special mention among the materials for this chapter. End of footnote. End of chapter 17.